Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, well, we're broadcasting to you from the Eastern Border, as I have recently moved back to the place where this podcast began. That is Toulouse, which is, well, in the border territory next to Russia. I'll be uh, asking a lot of questions to the local people around how they lived through the era. I'm back in Latgale, and I intend to gather a lot of crazy and interesting studies, a lot of them involving the history of Luz as well. So, I'll be even closer. Because, you know, if you have followed my social media, then you know that my opinion about what's happening in Russia currently is quite a dark one, and I'd rather be close to that location when terrible things happen so that I can go there myself and investigate. At the same time, I uh, I want to move to a more peaceful location, because Riga got the best of me for a bit, and I want to kind of get some peace in my life. After all, I just turned 30, and it's necessary for me, you know, get some peace and stability, finally. In other news, I shall be in Boston, Harvard, and then in New York in October, and then might travel to other places too, but uh, that's a bit of a secret thing. I am going to let you know what's up, but yeah, if you will be somewhere near Boston or New York uh, in October, specifically from 5th to 25th, around those times, I'll be in Boston and then in New York, so you can just contact us. And uh, this episode is going to be a political one again, because tomorrow, as of this recording, because this is recorded in the 7th of September, tomorrow there are going to be the very same elections that I have been talking to you about in the previous episodes, the ones in Moscow and St. Petersburg. You know, the regional ones. The ones where uh, all the opposition candidates were basically thrown out, and none were allowed even to register for these set elections. And these are the ones for whom the massive protest actions happened. And some court cases have already been closed. There have been multiple cases of people having real real jail time. One of the protesters was sent to three years in prison for mm, causing severe pain to a National Guard officer uh, by touching his helmet slightly. No, I'm serious. And the other one went to prison for three and a half years for kicking a trash can. Especially severe cases, well, they were reported by my colleagues in Medusa, and I'm going to use this article to explain this better to you, because I'd rather return to history, and I will do so in the following episodes, but right now, right now these elections are the most important thing, because there are several misunderstandings about them, and several things can go wrong. See, on September the 5th, Moscow's Tverskoy District Court sentenced activist Konstantin Kostov to four years in prison for attending a political demonstration on August the 10th in support of free elections in Moscow. Kostov was convicted of breaking Russia's law against repeated violations of public assembly statutes because he had been previously attending 
these protest actions. Everything about this case is really unprecedented and weird. The investigation, the trial, the severity of the sentence, and, well, basically the felony statute itself as well. On August the 12th, Konstantin Kotov was charged with repeated violations of Russia's statute and public assemblies. Before this summer's Moscow City Duma protests, Kotov attended rallies in support of arrested mathematics graduate Azat Miktafov, uh, suspects in the so-called Network and New Greatness cases, which were basically just trumped-up charges for nothing, really. And also, he attended support rallies for Medusa correspondent Ivan Golunov, which we mentioned here in the show as well, and yeah, for all of these, he was detained and arrested. Kotov was arrested on August the 13th, and just two days later, his attorney was informed that the investigation was complete. On August the 20th, officials announced that they had assembled the necessary evidence base and were taking the case to the trial. His first hearing was on September the 3rd, and the very next day, state prosecutors arrested their case and asked the judge to sentence him to 4.5 years in prison. On September the 5th, Kotov was convicted and sentenced to four years. The judge simply refused to review surveillance footage capturing Kotov's entire route at the August 10th rally. On September the 5th, the day Kotov's sentence was announced, the independent television station Dozh, which you should also watch because they have uh, subtitles in English as well, yeah, they published the video. The footage, by the way, makes it clear that Kotov never actually made it to the protest itself. All he managed to do was exit the subway station and walk, well, maybe 30 meters, about 100 feet, with a white sign sticking out of his backpack. Within 30 seconds, police officers grabbed him and escorted him to a police van. And this is where things get really weird, because even Russia's constitutional court has criticized the criminal statutes used to lock up Kotov. The offense cited in Kotov's conviction... Criminal Code 212.1 partly violates a 217 ruling by Russia's Constitutional Court, which recommended clarifying the grounds for criminal liability under this statute, though the court ultimately declined to strike down the law itself as unconstitutional. Justices determined that only violent offenders of this law should be imprisoned. Individuals who not only repeatedly violate demonstration rules, but who cause or threaten real damage or harm to others. After this ruling, Russia's Justice Ministry announced that it has no plans to propose any amendments to the Criminal Code, however, insofar as the Constitutional Court did not require any specific response. In Kotov's case, both the court and the investigators claimed that he posed a danger to others because of his repeated attendance at previous rallies. And Kotov's case is important because this is unprecedentedly brutal, even compared to the only one, only one other defendant ever in Russia, ever, convicted of the same offense. Kotov was found guilty of violating this so-called Dadyan statute, named after Ildar Dadyan, the first and only other person ever convicted of committing this crime. The criminal code first appeared in 2014, and it's faced unrelenting criticism from politicians and human rights advocates alike for both its excessive severity and the fact that it subjects defendants to double jeopardy, effectively retrying several misdemeanors as a single felony. Both Presidential Human Rights Council Chairman Mikhail Fedotov and Human Rights Commissioner Tatyana Moskhalova have called for the statute's abolition. Even Ildar Dayan's sentence was just two years, despite the fact that he actually managed to participate in the final protest that led to his arrest and prosecution. Dayan's verdict, moreover, was ultimately overturned after major news reports about him being tortured in prison. So, Konstantin Kotov is now the only person in all of Russia whose criminal record is a violation of this statute. 
Now isn't this nice, and there were cores running all over this place at the 5th of September. And the worst part is, at the same time, Alexei Navalny, who's kind of the leader of this opposition about whom we're gonna speak next, about his idea how to vote on these elections. Yeah, his brother, on the 5th, when they knew all these court cases were going down, his brother, who had spent three years in prison for trumped-up charges himself, he basically opened up a, uh, a exhibit about tattoos, you know, a tattoo exhibit, because he's a tattoo artist. And uh, basically, there were some naked people in this one, they had a massive drinking party, and there were, like, naked people coming in, they all danced together with other opposition candidates, and, you know, even though your fellow oppositionaries, who you have yourself sent to prison, basically, for, you know, asking them to come to your protest actions, planned ones that you've basically organized yourself, yeah, when they get sent to prison, what, what does Navalny do? Well, this is a kind of a stone in Navalny's garden, because Navalny decides to, you know, oh, let's open up my brother's exhibit on this very day. Let us make sure that, you know, we party and have fun while other people are getting unprecedented, crazy, brutal sentences for doing the exact thing that we told them to do. And that's not the only case where Navalny is looking more and more suspicious, because, again, like I posted in my social media accounts, in these elections where none of the legitimate opposition candidates were allowed to even participate, yeah, in these elections I kind of root for the communists, because they are the only, well, even if it's a pseudo-opposition, they're, they're kind of the only ones you can trust. But before we get to Navalny and other offers and ideas on how to vote in these elections, we have to look at the voting system because that has been changed. See, the thing is, previously all the voting in Russia was done by paper, and especially when the Putin's elections, because I call them Putin's elections, because, you know, you can't really call them presidential elections in Russia anymore, they were won by brutally, you know, vo voting fraud and just people stuffing the ballot boxes with a bunch of papers. This time, they have decided to use electronic voting machines, which could kind of prevent the stuffing of voting ballots and voting boxes with more ballots than necessary. However, this has a lot of issues on its own, and if you tie it together with all the facts that we know of so far, well, we might see actually an unprecedented account of voting fraud in these following Russian elections. See, the trick is that the Moscow mayor's office has promised that its prototype online voting system, which will get this limited test run in tomorrow's, well, that's this Sunday, 8th of September, City Duma elections, would be transparent. Instead, officials have assembled something even more obfuscated than traditional voting. In standard, typical elections, you can always recount the ballots. This will not be possible with Moscow's internet voting, and online observers effectively will have zero ways repeating this, zero ways of knowing if electronic votes have been counted properly. In essence, the mayor's office can claim whatever internet voting results it likes, and neither voters nor observers will be able to prove otherwise. The system's architects designed three means of controlling for the correct counting of votes, but all three were completely abandoned. The mayor's office promised that individual voters would be able to verify after the election that their vote was accurately recorded in the system. Programmers promised to release a special service for this option, but the plan was scrapped at the last minute. The mayor's office promised to publish a vote decryption key, which would have allowed observers to decrypt and count anonymized votes. In the end, Five days before the elections, the Moscow officials decided that vote encryption would limit observers' access to, quote, 
the total number of encrypted ballots, the number of decrypted ballots, and the percentage of decrypted ballots, end quote. And the mayor's office promised to grant access to the voting system's blockchain so observers could track all so-called transactions from the source. This would have allowed observers to monitor the entire voting process. But city officials ultimately decided to restrict access to specific blocks. So basically, officials sacrificed transparency for the sake of ballot secrecy, and you know exactly what that means if it comes to elections, any elections whatsoever, in the Russian Federation. Developers never explained publicly why they decided to abandon voting transparency, but the city's working group members say the programmers told them unofficially that they scrapped the vote verification system on orders from their employer. Officially, the mayor's office says its internet voting is risk-free, but concerns about ballot secrecy might explain why the city decided to limit access to the system's blockchain and why it stopped publishing private encryption keys in its public intrusion tests. Ordinary voters now won't have a simple means of copying their encrypted vote, but ticks of individuals will figure this one out eventually. Definitely, Russian hackers can do anything. The same is true of employers who force staff to vote remotely from their workplaces. The voting systems designers haven't figured out how to prevent this. If the systems developers published a private encryption key, these votes could be decrypted and full access to the blockchain would provide access to the private key, even if it weren't released separately. That is, when voting ends, the vote encryption key is collected from several points and recorded in the blockchain. This could have been prevented super easily. Because Moscow's internet voting system was designed in a way that prohibits users from voting one way initially, as an employer might demand, and later changing their vote before the end of the elections. Online voting in our neighbor Estonia, which we're looking at here in Latvia, this one allows people to change their votes like this, as a protection against workplace pressure. Granting Moscow workers the right to change their votes would require a radical redesign of the system that has been developed. For example, it would kind of necessitate ditching blockchain and changing the anonymization scheme, which is now in place. In Moscow's system, anonymization occurs immediately before a ballot is received. It is impossible to know where, quote-unquote, a specific voter's ballot is, which means voters cannot modify their choice and invalidate the first ballot. In Estonia, anonymization occurs after voting is complete, but before the votes are decrypted, when the system takes the last ballot submitted by each voter, severs its ties to individual and then shuffles the votes before finally decrypting the data. At the same time, before voting is over, any individual can verify that their vote was recorded correctly. Estonian online voting also lasts more than 12 times longer than Moscow's. 153 hours versus just 12, and access is controlled by microchip tokens and PIN codes, where, in place of this, Moscow's system relies on logins, passwords, and text messages. Which basically means that the restrictions on Moscow's internet voting have resulted in a process that's even less transparent and even more corrupt, and it is abused even more easily than, you know, traditional ballot voting. Blockchain, in this case, protects against ballot stuffing after the voting is finished, but Moscow officials have nevertheless left the door wide open for election fraud. The city is essentially telling observers and voters to have faith that the new system will work as advertised, but the mayor's office hasn't really, you know, done anything to provide any confidence with uh, its own behavior so far. You know, by imprisoning people who want to have fair elections, even if they don't make it to the whole protest thing as a whole. It does not matter. You are accused of something, you do not even make it to the place, and then you get 
four years in colony, as they call it in Russia, which is basically somewhere in Siberia, somewhere far away, you'll, you'll still sit in this nice colony. Glorious now, isn't it? It's one of those amazing things why I make this podcast. And, uh, yeah, for example, when a previous iteration of the system failed a public intrusion test, which was kind of, you know, there was a money prize on it, and people hack into it, and I reported about this, and, and people from Medusa really put their best effort in it and hacked it, and then they just granted people, you know, free keys to, so that they could hack it themselves following this instruction set, which I did as well. Yeah, they just, you know, said, uh, no, this never happened, no money prize, no hacking happened whatsoever. Yep. The mayor's office from Moscow also refused to disclose the internet voting system's full code, and uh, consequently of this, well, for obvious reasons here, as it just gets funnier as it goes on, uh, this thing has not been subjected to any independent audits whatsoever. This means that basically no one but the guys who were paid to develop this by the Moscow mayor's office and people related to it, yeah, these are the only guys who know how this whole system works. Amazing. In traditional elections, observers can check voters' passports to verify that they are voting legitimately. With online voting, in this case, this kind of monitoring is simply impossible, but will be in place, and then again, I assure you that we shall see more and more in the news about how these elections were the most honest and the most trustworthy on the planet Earth, and how no cheating happened whatsoever. As a result of all of these shortcomings, the Moscow mayor's office can effectively publish whatever internet voting results it likes, and neither voters nor observers will have any way of judging the members' accuracy. The system's code hasn't been released, and observers won't have the chance to recount these votes. The only conceivable way of verifying the only election results would be to take the city to court where officials could be compelled to grant access to the system's original blockchain and vote decryption key. However, this will also not happen at all, because... The courts, as we heard in the last segment, are just totally in control by the Moscow mayor's office and by the whole official system, because, you know, the judges are people too, and they don't want to lose their jobs, so they'll just basically, in courts, do whatever the Moscow mayor, well, tells them to. Isn't that fun? And then, even because of all of this, because there are still paper ballots available, you can still go and vote on a paper ballot. You don't have to vote on the internet. But I bet the internet vote is going to be the one that's going to be cheesed out, because in the last election specifically, the paper ballots were the ones that the most cheating and the most kind of trespassing of everything happened. So I just presume that in this case, in this very specific election, yeah, they're going to do all their cheating and this electronic format, so that they could, you know, they don't even have to provide a paper trail. They will no longer have, like, access to insane amounts of videos from cameras and everywhere that just show how much rigged the elections were, how people were taken to buses from one place of elections to another, and, you know, forced to vote a certain way, how people who worked at these elections to ensure that they were fair and honest, yeah, how they themselves stuff the ballot boxes for the United Russia political party. None of this is needed now. Right now we have this wonderful system of totally insecure, totally fraudulent electronic vote where we can just, you know, add or lose votes as necessary, which basically means that Moscow's mayor Sobyanin is going to be 100% re-elected. But still, people are encouraged to go and vote in these elections, because like I said, there are the opposition basically presents and promotes, and I'm talking about legitimate opposition, not just these kind of systematic opposition guys who are all in Putin's paychecks, they are still providing some solutions, and there are basically three things that you can do so that your voice would kind of matter in this whole thing, 
and there are varying opinions because, as usual, there are three scenarios how all of this can turn out. Hey guys, Annette here. How long have you been a listener of the Eastern Border? Let us know in the comments on our Facebook page or on our website, theeasternborder.lv. As always, a big, big thank you to all of our Patreons. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to patreon.com slash theeasternborder to find out how you too can support our show. And to keep up to date with everything Eastern Border, follow us on our social media like Facebook, Twitter and Discord. That's it from me now, and see you online! This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Let's turn to these scenarios because one of them is basically traditional opposition scenario. The Sasha Sotnik one, the hardcore opposition to Putin. The other one is what Navalny proposes, which is this so-called smart voting system. And the third one is presented by Khodorkovsky from London and supported by some other parties of the opposition like Yabloko, which are kind of more idealistic ones about how people should vote here. So, let's turn to these. The first option is, as usual, the complete boycott of these elections, because as the hardcore opposition says, this will remove any legitimacy from these elections. You know, just don't go there. Let them have like, you know, one or two or maybe three percent of people turning out and, you know, voting as necessary because they'll win anyways. But then no one will have participated. And in such a manner, people who will get elected in this way will lose all their legitimacy. Which is in principle a good idea, but that just means accepting the fate and, you know, just not even trying. Which means that the people will have to fight for their rights, for voting, and for fairness, in a way, through other means. Then again, the argument is presented in a way that, well, if you wouldn't know that your partner in a card game is an obvious cheat and a liar, would you join it? Would you join such a card game where you would know that one of your partners against whom you're playing is totally cheating you. Of course you wouldn't, so why would you do this? But then again, this um, position is something that I don't quite agree with, because elections are not a card game, even though such analogies might seem to be attractive at the first glance. That is the standard position that has always been there uh, since we found out that elections are completely unfair. But, well, it hasn't really worked so far now, has it? The second one is Navalny's smart voting system, where he has made an app where people can register and they point out their address, and then the Navalny's app tells them which candidate to vote for, which isn't from United Russia Party, and who also has like a real chance of support and real chance of winning. The problem with this is twofold, because, you know, such an app would be necessary due to how unpopular United Russia Party as a whole currently is in Russia, 90% of all of United Russia candidates are just going to this election, this Moscow, which is a city of 20 million people, and St. Petersburg, which is a city of another 5 million, you know, those are super huge cities. These guys are going to these elections as independent candidates, just somewhere mentioning that they're part of the mayor's team, stuff like that. So a lot of people who might go there and vote, they wouldn't even know, like, which candidate represents United Russia, which doesn't. 
So this app kind of helps it. But there is the biggest issue where this smart voting basically means that the only party with any real chances and who has their own electorate, not counting Zhirinovsky's LDPR because they're a massive joke, are the communists. And I mean the hardcore communists, and it's kind of weird because currently, if you would follow this pattern of Navalny's smart voting, you would be voting and supporting about 33 communist candidates in these elections a lot of whom are actually hardcore Stalinists, or tankies, as Western people would put it, and even the Communist Party itself, with Zuganov in front of them, have stated that, yeah, you know, we hate Navalny, and Navalny hates us, but in this specific case, he's doing something good, so the Communists are kind of um, supporting all this, they are there to advocate for the smart voting, because the Communists, due to how everyone else was prohibited from both running and participating in all this. Yeah, the communists come out as the big winners. Then there's the problem, because a lot of these communists have not said anything bad about the massive court processes that have happened. They haven't said anything bad about the police violence in the protests. They are also massive Stalinists, and, and it's quite bizarre. However, they are the guys with the biggest chance of upsetting the establishment. But they're also the sanctioned opposition, the so-called sanctioned opposition with this attitude that they sort of want to win, but not really, because they are allowed to run and they're kept in this pet position because everyone in the voting party in the United Russia bloc knows that, you know, they can be manipulated, they'll do whatever United Russia tells them because United Russia will just throw them a bone and give them some money. So in one sense, this very kind of liberal position, even though he really isn't, because if you look at how Navalny's own opposition is structured, Navalny has built his own opposition and presenting himself as this leader of all opposition in Russia. However, it, well, his flank is mostly built like a sect, like a cult. There is no disagreements within his own political structures, and he, well, I'm afraid if he would gain power, he would kind of become quite like Putin himself, because he just plays it to ramp up support among the youth and among those people, but I wouldn't trust him personally, especially after what he said in support of 2008 war in Georgia, which a lot of people don't, don't remember. So what's the third alternative? We don't like voting for communists, or we don't like not voting in general. Well, that is what Khodorkovsky has proposed, and that is the so-called, you know, consciousness voting. Or, as people from Echo Moskvy, Alexey Venediktov, I think, also positioned this idea about the dumb voting. You know, you just go and vote for whomever you like, as long as they're not from United Russia. The problem is, finding out who is and who isn't from this United Russia due to these independent candidates is, well, very, very hard. So Hodorkovsky has made up his own website with his own rules and everything. Basically, it says, you know, vote for whomever you like ignoring the who might win, who might not win aspect of this, as long as they're not from United Russia, or as long as they're not tied to United Russia. Secondly, only vote for the candidates who actually have actively participated in support of these protest actions and against these very harsh court sentences to the people who were arrested there. And if there is no one in your district for whom you can vote according to these criteria, then just, you know, disrupt the ballot and never vote electronically, because then your vote will get lost. Essentially, it's all a massive amount of fuss, it's all craziness, and these elections are just gone super sour. But no matter what happens, I know for sure that, well, communists will definitely, because of the support from Navalny, will in some districts, some districts more than United Russia expects, United Russia will in most of them, there will be a massive election fraud, and I predict another massive wave of protests after this one.
But the political crisis in Russia is just getting deeper and deeper, and it's something that, well, as we'll get back to more political episodes next month, we'll look at this, but it's all getting scarier and scarier, and things are getting weirder and weirder, and more people will get arrested, more people will get these jail sentences, and more people will participate in these unlegitimate, these weird-ass protests. And I'll be here to observe this whole situation, because what's happening with any random elections and with anything is... All of this is getting scarier because people are truly grasping at their last straws to make something there look even remotely legitimate, look even remotely democratic. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting day tomorrow. I'll be posting on social media. Please follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. On Facebook, just type the Eastern Border. On Twitter, it's Eastern underscore Border. Send us emails and we'll, we'll try to get everything down and... Uh, try to answer all of your questions after this move, which has taken a lot of time and energy. But we're here to provide for your needs. And of course, next episode is going to be a special listener request special about Soviet urban legends. But that's going to happen after I finally deal with all this crazy election situation. Because, you know, this is going towards a massive crisis in the world, maybe even a nuclear one. And I want to be there, I want to report about all this situation. Because that's, that's my job, and... Uh, Frankly speaking, I am getting getting quite scared to be here on the border to figure out what's going on. Not, not a really pleasant place to be in at this given moment, but what can I do? Oh, and don't forget about the Atom RPG contest. I haven't received as many entries as I had planned for, so don't forget to send us an image of yourself in some abandoned building or in front of one or something that looks interesting and post-apocalyptic to get your free Atom RPG game. Anyway, sorry for the shorter episode. I'll get a bit more adapted in this place. And well, what can I say? До свидания, товарищи. Let's follow these elections. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.